You're listening to Vernacular Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Vernacular Podcast. I'm Zach. And I'm Sally. And this is the third installment of our book club season. So I think the fourth podcast we've done this year, but the third time we've done a book today, we're looking at The Power of Meaning by Emily Esfahani Smith. And if you are a longtime listener, you'll, you might remember that Emily joined us on our podcast in December of 2015. I think it was season two, episode nine, to talk about meaning and finding purpose in life. And she actually told us about the book that she's working on called The Power of Meaning. So yeah, at the time, out, oh, sorry, she was just writing in the Atlantic and um, I think the New York Times. And so she was in the very, it seemed like the earlier stages of her book writing, but now it's completed. Yeah. And in fact, in the acknowledgments of this book, I noticed that she thanks James Hamblin, who's one of our favorite writers at The Atlantic, because she wrote an article uh, that he asked her to write in The Atlantic that was the sort of seed of the book. So, um, Pretty cool stuff. I think it came out at the end of last year. So we picked up a copy and thought it would be great to do for our book club. And let's see. It's a pretty it's a pretty simply laid out book. Uh, the table of contents is brief. Uh, and the, the book itself is pretty brief, 220 pages or so. Um, yeah, unlike so Quiet, int- where there was like the, the kind of arc, overarching chapter title and then like chapters within it. There's just the basic chapters, which I find helpful. I Having sub chapters is a little confusing sometimes. Yeah, agreed. So in this, in, in this book, there's the introduction, there's a chapter called The Meaning Crisis, and then Belonging, Purpose, Storytelling, Transcendence, Growth, Cultures of Meeting, Meaning, and a Conclusion. And the typical content structures the book really well. The basic synopsis, or basic thesis, I should say, is uh, Esfahani Smith says that there are four pillars that humans, um, from which humans can derive meaning, hence the title of the book, The Power of Meaning, um, and why it's important. So those four pillars are having a sense of belonging, having a sense of purpose, uh, having a way to um, tell the story of your life, storytelling, and then transcendence. Um, and through those pillars, uh, not necessarily all of them, but at least one or some combination of them, humans can find meaning. And it's a good thing because meaning ultimately leads to growth and meaning leads to satisfaction in our lives. Um, and in telling the story, she draws on social science research, classical philosophy, and lots of anecdotes. Um, did I leave anything out, Sally? Is that basically the gist? No, I think that's it. Yeah, she. I think she's. It seems like she's both a philosopher and a journalist at heart because she's interviewing a lot of people to put together this book. But she also has these underlying philosophical themes, and uh, she mentions a lot of philosophers as she goes about making her argument. Yeah, well, let's let's uh, jump off of that point and talk about the introduction where she uh, opens up with a story about. Um, her Sufi family. She says uh, she and her family belong to the, I'll probably butcher this, uh, Nimatullahi Sufi order, which is a Sufi order from Iran that started in the 14th century. And twice a week growing up, I think she grew up in Canada. Um, yeah, Montreal. Twice a week they would have um, basically uh, gatherings at their homes where she would be 
exposed to the Sufi community of Montreal. And she talked about that. She talked about the Sufi idea that the self is a barrier to love. And I thought that was that was an interesting idea because I don't know. Do we think do we think that the self is a barrier to love? Yeah, I mean, I think that a distorted view or a an unhealthy emphasis on the self could be a barrier to love. So, um, and I guess love of other people because you could have self love. So I think that that's kind of an, taking it to an extreme, kind of like. I don't know, an aesthetic aesthetic view where you would want to spurn all comforts or something because they could be barriers to transcendence or something like that. Well, I think there's, and we can talk about this in the transcendence meaning, but I think there are parts of this book where um, Esvani Smith almost conflates transcendence with self-denial or asceticism. And I think it's sometimes warranted, but sometimes not. We can talk about that a little bit more later. But on your point about the philosophy stuff in this in this context of the Sufi um, meeting house she mentions um, Aristotle and talks about how in the mold of Aristotle and the great philosophers philosophy used to be primarily concerned with how to live the good life but she points out and lament that recently academic philosophy has moved to quote more esoteric or technical subjects like the nature of consciousness or the philosophy of computers so she's upset that philosophy is no longer trying to figure out what living the good life actually means and is instead um, moving in uh, yeah, more esoteric directions and not as practical for helping people figure out how we should live. Yeah, and I wonder why that is. Because, I mean, I was a philosophy major in college, and that was a long time ago, and and I'm definitely not an expert, but it, I did have that sense that there were a lot of other classes that you could take on more what seemed like more practical philosophy rather than philosophy of the good life. But I wonder if that's because we've, we think that we've already figured it out or that's an old question that's been answered too many times before. (laughs) I don't know, but clearly the whole premise, I mean, the whole title, the title of her introduction crisis of meaning is that we are having a crisis. We, we can't find meaning in our lives. And we think that, when we, in order to have a meaningful life, we just need to be happy and look for happiness. And that's where she brings up Nozick. Um, and in order to contrast a happy life with a meaningful life. So clearly we haven't answered the question because people today are saying that they can't figure out what the meaning of life is, or they can't even figure out whether they're supposed to be happy or whether they're supposed to find meaning. So can you tell us more about this uh, Nozick character, Robert Nozick? Oh, I mean... She just be, she uses him to to draw that distinction, and um, he said that there was more to life than being happy. So that happiness shouldn't be the goal of our lives, and that's where she she starts to talk about. Well, there's a difference between living a happy life and living a life full of meaning or a meaningful life. And I think at first when I read that part, and we talked about this when she was on our podcast. Happiness can be defined in so many different ways, and people have disagreed over the centuries about what happiness is. And some people would say, well, some, some people like Aristotle, eudaim- eudaimonia is happiness. And so, yes, we do want to pursue happiness. But then when you start to unpack what happiness means to someone like Aristotle, you realize that what he is really talking about is a f- is the idea of meaning as as um 
Esfahani Smith lays it out. So, so yeah, so she uses Nozick to launch this distinction between happiness and meaning. And then she goes in to talk about Aristotle to explain why he actually bolsters her case and doesn't hurt it. And I like her, her brief, succinct contrast between hedonia and eudaimonia on page 14 when she talks about it, how if hedonia is feeling good, so think of a hedonist who just perceives pleasure. If hedonia is feeling good, then eudaimonia is being and doing good. So you can, you can live a life of happiness in the sense of pursuing pleasure, but be totally miserable because there's no eudaimonia. Yeah, I think that's great. That's a really good distinction. And this is all in her introduction. So she's uh, outlining the, the meaning crisis, like, uh, like Sally was just saying. Um, I also did think it was interesting. We've talked before on the podcast about how great comedians are really cultural commentators um, masquerading as comedians. We've talked about it specifically in the context of Aziz Ansari, who's a funny man with very cutting social commentary, if you have seen any of his work. For sure. But on, on page 32, Esfani Smith makes the same point about Louis C.K. and has this line that really resonated with me. Like all great comedians, C.K. is a Louis C.K., is a philosopher masquerading as a funny man. That's great. <laughs> and and he, uh, he has this quote that she uses where Louis C.K. says, underneath everything in your life, there is that thing, that empty, forever empty, that knowledge that it's all for nothing and that you're alone. It's down there. And sometimes when things clear away, you're not watching anything. You're in your car and you start going, oh, no, here it comes, that I'm alone. It starts to visit on you. It's just, just, just this sadness. Life is tremendously sad just by being in it. So that's kind of a downer of a quote, but I think it highlights the the meaning crisis that if you don't have meaning in your life, you do feel this vast emptiness. And I think most people have probably felt that at some point. Yeah, and actually Verily used um, Esfahani Smith's book, Power of Meaning, to to make an argument that we especially need that in this day and age because of all the kind of overload of stimuli and distractions and social media that makes us feel as though we are happy. But then when you strip away all of that and we're not being overloaded with all of these um, different sources of communication and information, we realize, no, we're, we're missing something really important. Um, so we can link to that article. But I just thought that that was really um, timely and uh, and just kind of shows how even more so in our kind of data-driven and communication age, we we really are missing out on, on something, but we kind of mask it with these forms of happiness. Yeah, absolutely. So, okay, well, without further ado, <laughs> belonging? Yeah, yeah. so uh, the first pillar that she explores is belonging, the sort of central anecdote to the chapter. And the opening anecdote is about... Um, a community called Tangier Island in Virginia. Maybe you've heard of this. I had not before the book, but it's a small island several miles off the coast of the state of Virginia. The island itself is 1.2 square miles in size, sits in the middle of the Chesapeake Bay. It's an hour ferry ride from both Virginia and Maryland. Um, And it's very isolated from, even though it's not that far away, it's very isolated from the mainland. So there's about 500 people on the island. Everyone knows each other. They actually have their own accent because they're so um, 
so cut off from the rest of America. So they almost sound British. They don't sound like someone who grew up in the state of Virginia, the mainland. Um, but she explores how close knit this community is and how one of the people who left continually goes back. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting exploration of the power of belonging to a small community and how it holds people together and gives them uh, some sense of meaning in their lives. And she uses that as the launching point for exploring the broader uh, implications of belonging and why it's important. And I think we've heard this story before when people talk about kind of small town America um, and and their experience growing up in a small town where everyone knows each other. So it's not, it was, I liked the story, but um, I don't think it's necessarily, yeah, it's not unique to to Tangier, but I was, I found belonging to be one of the less compelling pillars that she talks about because it seems as though belonging is this feeling that you have, this sense of community with other people, but it just seems like just that, just a feeling. And Mm -hmm. even, um, and I didn't think about this till now, but when you were kind of described, when you quote it, when you repeated that quote of hers about hedonism versus eudaimonia, there's something about the happiness and the meaning of eudaimonia that is active and about doing something. And belonging is just this feeling that you have of closeness with other people, that you belong. But I wasn't sure if that, that just seems a little bit empty, ultimately. Yeah. It seems like you need other pillars as well. Like belonging may contribute to a meaningful life, but it doesn't seem like one, it doesn't seem like you can just rely solely on belonging to have a meaningful life. Yeah, I totally agree. To me, it doesn't seem so much as a, so much to be a pillar um, as to be an important element of a well-lived life. I mean, obviously we are, in the words of Aristotle, a social animal. And so we have this, we have this need to belong that, that uh, Esfahani Smith talks about, but I don't think that belonging is a pillar of a meaningful life in the same way that, for example, transcendence is. Yeah, and we can talk about this when we get to the storytelling chapter, but when I was reading the belonging chapter, I was wondering, is this in conflict with storytelling? Because belonging is supposed to focus on other people. She says on page, I think it's the last page of the chapter, page 72, she says, rather, meaning largely lies in others. Only through focusing on others do we build the pillar of belonging for both ourselves and for them. If we want to find meaning in our own lives, we have to begin by reaching out. And I'm, I was wondering, is that in conflict with storytelling, which seems to be more of a focus on the self and our own personal story? So mm-hmm. we, can, we can wait on that until we get to the next chapters. Um, well, yeah, yeah Go it's a good point, though, because if the if the self is a barrier to love, as she suggested the Sufis believe, then that would be in, contra- in, in contradiction to, I would think, right? That if, that if your, if your self belonging is so important, but then the self is a barrier to love, then it seems like the belonging might not be as important right. after all. And maybe everyone just has a different experience of meaning. And so belonging doesn't necessarily have to be in sync with storytelling. But again, even if the two are not in, are, do not have to be in sync and they're not in conflict, I'm just, I wasn't as convinced that belonging in and of itself was enough for a meaningful life. Right. So, okay. But then um, the next chapter, purpose? Yes. Uh, well, I do, I do briefly just want to talk about the sort of belonging crisis that she brings oh, yeah. up on page 55. So she has these great stories of, of 
communities like Tangier. And she has a, um, a really sad study that I've heard about before from a researcher named Renee Spitz in the uh, first half of the 20th century with 88 children in an orphanage. And they had human contact avoided um, intentionally for, I think, half of them or so. And basically, children can't survive without love. So it's a terrible study that probably wouldn't pass ethics um, reviews. But it showed the human desire to be loved and to belong. And then she pointed out that as digital connectedness increases, social isolation is rising. So she says on page 55, about 20% of people consider loneliness to be a major source of unhappiness in their lives. And this is despite the fact that we have more things connecting us with more people than it, than at any point in human history. Yeah, so this is what the Verily article was mentioning, too. Yeah. So she says in 1985, when the General Social Survey asked Americans how many people they discussed important matters with over the last six months, the most common response was three. When the survey was given again in 2004, this is 19 years later, the most common response was zero. Yikes. So she goes on to say these figures reveal more than a rise of, in loneliness. They reveal a lack of meaning in people's lives. I think she's spot on there. Um, I think maybe where I would differ, and I think where you would differ too, based on what you're saying, Sally, is, is that the belonging itself is the pillar of meaning rather than something else that spurs belonging. Right. Yeah. It seems like the belonging has to be rooted in something else. Right. Okay. Well, yeah. So chapter two now? Um, yeah. Or I guess, yeah. Is it? Yeah. The second oh, pillar. Sorry, not chapter two. The second pillar. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> chapter three. Um, so purpose. This was my, I think this was my favorite chapter. I could definitely resonate with a distinction that she makes on page 96, which is calling versus purpose. She said, not all of us will find our calling, but that doesn't mean we can't find purpose. And I just thought that was a helpful distinction because sometimes we're looking for this all-encompassing ambition or life's work that we're supposed to accomplish. And and that's not necessarily ever going to come for some people. Um, but we could have we can find purpose even in a smaller life or in a job that doesn't seem very glorious. And she has a Virginia Woolf quote in the beginning of the book that I think kind of relates to this that I really liked. Um, and as I'm sitting in our darkened closet, I can't see it very well. <laughs> so I will uh, put it on the blog. But it's a really good <laughs> quote that basically kind of says the same thing, that there might not be this great revelation. There might not be this moment of, aha, this is what I'm supposed to do with the rest of my life. But it's kind of the little moments that are are held together by this larger sense of purpose, or at least that's how I interpreted the quote. And yeah. I and I like that. I, I feel like I can get behind that for how I see my life. Yeah, I'm not sure if I like that line as much because it suggests that your purpose and your calling are distinct. I think I definitely hear what you're saying that not everyone will find a grand, a, you know, a grand task. Yeah. So it depends on how you define calling. Yeah. But go right. ahead, re redefine it. Well, I just think your calling and your purpose are can be the, the same, same thing. but I think the yeah. problem is that the problem is that too many people are looking for their huge impact. They see themselves doing something huge, and if they don't live up to that lofty expectation that they have because of friends, Facebook stories, and Instagram pictures, or just because of some ambition they had as a kid, you know, like let's say someone grows up wanting to be an astronaut, and then they 
get to college and realize they're actually not that good at math. So they sort of head in a totally different direction than what they ultimately wanted to do all their life. It's not that they're a failure and it's not that they're not fulfilling their calling. It's just that they're called to do something else. Yeah. Because the, because the astronaut path didn't work out. Yeah, this is kind of reminding me of our conversation with contributor Elena about Johnny Cash. Mm-hmm. And I think that we kind of talked about the similar idea that vocation, what vocation is and what calling yeah. is. And it's a little bit more all-encompassing than people make it out to be. Right. Yeah, and I think we talked in that segment, too, about how um, vo- vocation has the same root as calling, you know, vocare, um, to, to uh, be called by a voice. And that's why we use the word calling. So your vocation is your calling, especially if you if you put your everything into it. So I did. I definitely understand what you're saying about the calling versus purpose line. But I think that I don't know if I could edit it. I would say not all of us will find that our calling you know aligns with our lofty expectations that we've set for ourselves. But that doesn't mean we can't find it, and it certainly doesn't mean that we can't find purpose. Yeah. Yeah. And I like how she, Oh, go ahead. No, go for it. Well, I just like how she kind of emphasized the importance of having, taking a bigger perspective and Mm -hmm. in how you see your life and thinking about how we would fit into a bigger story rather than, again, this kind of relates to the storytelling chapter. Um, They all are kind of, I don't know, they're not similar, all the pillars, but they have, uh, they overlap. And, but how do we fit in to the bigger picture, even just, even if our daily activities or our job or it just seems small and unimportant and being able to have, take that better perspective on your life and, um, and just, and, and revisiting that at each new stage of your life, because sometimes you you get into a new season of your life and you feel like you've lost your purpose or you've lost your calling but it's just taking mm-hmm. a step back and taking a you know the the big perspective the bigger look at everything in your life and, and then it's easier to kind of piece it together and see how no this actually does relate to my larger purpose or calling yeah that's a good point um two of the things i liked in this chapter so one on page 93 she cites the research of a guy named adam grant and Adam Grant is a Wharton uh, professor at the University of Pennsylvania. It turns out, I actually looked this guy up. He has written a number one New York Times bestseller in his own right and is a very impressive psychology uh, guy who focuses on human behavior and choice and psychology. And he's only 35 years old, but he's one of the highest ranked professors in America. That's amazing. And he's obviously doing very well for himself. He's coming out with a new book co-written by Cheryl, Cheryl Sandberg, the COO of Facebook. Wow. He's a pretty impressive young mind. And as you pointed out to me, we talked about him in Quiet, right? When we were Yeah, exactly. Quiet. So he's he's making the rounds in our book club, I guess, because this is the second time. That's why his name, his name jumped out at me, because I was like, oh, that looks really familiar. And I sh- found out, sure yeah. enough, he was cited in Quiet. But so he did this study about how people find meaning at work. I think this is probably in his first book, given the the topic of his first book. Um, But I have not verified that. He did this study on how people find meaning in work. And he said consistently uh, that people who rank their meaning, 
the highest are those who see their work as helping others. And in a survey of over 2 million people across 500 different jobs, the people who found uh, the most meaning in their careers were clergy, English teachers, surgeons, directors, directors of activities and education at religious organizations, elementary and secondary school administrators, radiation therapists, chiropractors, and psychiatrists. So that's a list of um, eight or nine jobs, but all of them are either um, religious or educational or healing. You know, they're, they're doctors or um, chiropractors, psychiatrists, etc. So I thought that was interesting because they're, they're either rooted in transcendence or they are rooted in um, some kind of self-giving. You know, uh, education is one of the most self-giving professions, and healing, you know, the medical profession, is um, right up there as well. So yeah, that was, was kind of cool. As Fanny Smith might say, belonging, too, because you're reaching out and focusing on other people with educating and healing. So Yeah. But, yeah, it's kind of once you group them, you realize it's – there, it's and there's not as so much variety in the meaningful careers as you might at first think. Yeah, not at all. I also liked in this chapter, um, Esfani Smith's invocation of Kant against the do-what-you-love culture. I'm not a huge Kantian, but I do like a lot of his work. And in this case, I think he's spot on. So he's talking about um, how a rational person, quote, necessarily wills that all capacities in him be developed because they serve him and are given to him for all sorts of possible purposes. But as Smith points out, this flies in the face of um, the, quote, current cultural imperative often heard during the graduation season to do what you love. So she says that Kant, the question is not what makes you happy, but how you can best contribute to your duty. Um, and and your, she cites a theologian, Friedrich Buchner, uh, in saying that your vocation lies, quote, where your deep gladness and the world's deep hunger meet. I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah, that's a great quote. Should we move on to chapter four, storytelling? Yes. So this was one of my favorite chapters, actually. Um, yeah, I'm I torn. Like I like this one, too. <laughs> yeah, and as people who listen to our podcast know, Sal and I love storytelling because that's why we started the podcast. So... Um, and actually, the, the first episode, the first season of our podcast was basically all storytelling. And we're not alone in our affinity for this. There are storytelling things popping up across America. There's one called The Moth, which is now a podcast in its own right. And it started as basically a, a regular gathering place for people in New York City to tell stories about their lives. But uh, Esfahani Smith's thesis in this uh, chapter is basically that storytelling is a way for us to weave the narratives of our lives in such a way that we can connect seemingly disparate points and then draw meaning from what we otherwise would not be able to if if those if, if the the points of the arc of our lives were not in a coherent story and she has several uh, anecdotes that uh, make sense about how exactly that happens but basically it's about constructing a narrative identity um, sort of a personal myth, and she talks about this on page one hundred and seven. And this is similar to what of your life. yeah, and this is similar to what we were. I mean, what I was just saying that she was saying in the purpose chapter, which is taking that bigger perspective and kind of stepping back and saying, how does this part of my life fit into a larger purpose or a larger right. story, as this right. is about? And that makes sense to me. I think. I mean, oh, absolutely, yeah. She says on page one hundred and four that our 
storytelling impulse emerges from a deep-seated need all humans share, the need to make sense of the world. And I think I think that's spot on. I think it's exactly why we tell stories. And I think she talks in particular in this chapter about how people use storytelling to uh, understand their grief and or, or, you know, understand a life-changing event like a uh, traumatic injury. And I think that makes a lot of sense. And personally, I, I understand that and have experienced that impulse when I hear a tragic story that has a sort of good or a tragic event that has a good ending. I like to hear the story and how how the tragic event actually led to the the grace at the end. Um, and it does it does help us find some meaning in pain and tragedy. And this is the chapter where she talks about that guy who went to prison, right? And then while he was in prison, he started eating healthy and working out. And then he started his own kind of combat style gym. Is that, is that yes. in this chapter? Yes. I thought that was a great anecdote. I really liked that one. Yeah, that was pretty cool. I mean, he just like brought himself up out of nothing and then started a whole fitness empire. I mean, not an empire, but some, I mean, there were more than one gym basically where he was helping people mm-hmm. do kind of at home workouts in combat or I guess what you would what you would use if you were in a prison cell or something like that, um, right? And that was just really cool because there was, a, and for him there was a very clear connection between what he went through being the motivation and empowering him to to um, become the the person that he was later on. Uh, so I just realized actually I, I went a little flip through that is not in this chapter that is oh, in the okay. chapter. So again, it's I mean it is funny how all of these pillars. They do overlap. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of interplay. Well, the thing in this chapter that I think I most resonated with was when she talks about counterfactual thinking and that Mm -hmm. we can kind of um, create a myth or a story by thinking, what if this hadn't happened? And then how would my life be different? Um, Right. And that's definitely the way I think about my life. What if I hadn't done X, Y, or Z that seems strange or seems like out of place? So for me, it would be going to law school for a year. Like, what was that? I mean, for some people that, that they might think that. And so, and I do too. Like, did I waste a year? Like, what was that? Um, but then when I think, well, if I didn't go to law school, then X, Y, or Z. And the biggest one being that I wouldn't have reconnected with you and gotten married to you then then it makes then it makes it all you know worthwhile but i think that's a helpful kind of pattern of thinking if you're if you step back and think oh well what what was the point of that well if it hadn't happened then x y or z right no definitely and i do that actually a lot too with you know i had i through through high school wanting to go to one college and like at the last moment i switched my like the preference on my applications to these two schools and flipped it. And I ended up going to the one that I didn't really want to go to all through high school. But all of a sudden at the end I did, and it was for a hilariously stupid reason that I was, you know, dating my first girlfriend at the time. And I, I knew she would be going to a nearby university and, you know, because it was my first girlfriend, I thought we were getting married and all that. And of course we, dated for like two months and that was it um but we broke up after my application was submitted so i was like committed at that point but the thing is if i had never gone to the school i did i wouldn't have met you right so you know yeah like these it, it helps to understand the counterfactual because it helps me make sense of why 
why we make the <laughs> decisions we do. Yeah, and there's obviously or, or not, like that's not why I made the decision. Obviously, I right. can't know. I was I couldn't know right. I was going to meet you, but it helps me make sense of of how how everything worked together in that story right. for me to meet you. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I also liked when she talked about the value of reading fiction. Um, I think that you know it's easy to think, oh, fiction, it's just a story and it's not real. So mm-hmm. is that a waste of time to be reading this? And you know, all the English majors and English teachers out there know the truth that that's not the case. But you know, some of the rest of us we can might fall into that trap of thinking that. But in reality, I know I do. Yeah, it just it seems like oh, this if I'm not reading real true things, then but there are true things embedded in those those fictional stories and even just the process of reading a story can help us construct our own stories so i thought that she just made some good points about that yeah definitely i did reading this chapter maybe want to go to a meeting of the moth yes yes any of those kind of groups where they talk about their stories it sounded really cool because you don't just go up there and kind of pour your heart out you you have to work on the story beforehand and really tell it i mean the delivery is part of it which is kind of cool yeah i uh i also have to say so i've never seen the life of pi or read the book (laughs) yeah neither have i i had no idea that the animals were symbols for human people people. yeah neither did i yeah (laughs) so it made me not want to see the movie or read the book actually it made me less interested in the book and the movie for sure it just sounded disturbing I have always wondered how a boy stranded on a ship with a tiger, a boat with a tiger, could be an interesting two hours. And uh, I can maybe understand a little bit more now, but I still and I'm not that interested in reading it. <laughs> well, should we move on to chapter five? Yes, transcendence, the last pillar. Although, actually, I am realizing now we did not cover your earlier hypothesis about a contradiction between the belonging chapter and the storytelling chapter. Oh, right, yeah. So do we think that there is a conflict? Yeah, so I don't I don't necessarily think there is, but I think that your point is a good one and it contributes to an argument that I would make that would that would say it's not really appropriate to view storytelling and belonging as pillars in and of themselves because they alone cannot ascribe meaning if meaning isn't relative anyway. But rather as important means of facilitating understanding of meaning or translating meaning to daily life. For example, on 102, uh, S. Smith talks about uh, Catherine Burns, who's the founder of the moth that we talked about. So Catherine Burns believed that, quote, the process of crafting a story helps the storytellers connect the events of their life in new ways. So really what She's saying that's the end of the quote, by the way. I stopped quoting Catherine Burns at that point. So, um, but really, what she's saying, I think, is that st- uh, telling stories helps storytellers identify a larger purpose in their lives. So it's not, it's not, a, this is not a new pillar. Storytelling does not ascribe meaning in and of itself. It's actually just a tool for people accessing an understanding of purpose. Um, or the role of the transcendent in their daily lives. So it's 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 like a it's a I, yeah. I guess what I'm saying is yeah, just a tool, tool for facilitating yeah. understanding rather than uh, the understanding itself. Yeah, I like the word that you used um, a few minutes ago, tran- translate or translation. Um, and I think yeah, sometimes we look at our lives and it's just 
looks like it was written in a foreign language. And so we can use this story to translate it into ideas that are more accessible or that help us right. yeah, understand what the purpose behind this event was or, yeah, to connect us with the transcendent. And you identified this uh, when we spoke earlier about it, but in the storytelling chapter on page 123, as she's wrapping up the chapter, um, she mentions that stories aren't storytellers aren't just creating meaning for themselves. They're helping others do so, too. So there does seem to be this idea that I would not agree with that basically craft your own meaning through stories. I think the value of stories is that stories help you access or translate, um, as we were just discussing, the truth and and understand the truth and how the various points of your life and lives of others intersect uh, in meaningful ways that reflect truth. But I don't think it's about, you know, just generating your own meaning. Right. Yeah, because um, and we were talking about creating your own personal myth or how fiction might not be about something real, but has truths embedded in it. I think that Mm -hmm. that also that speaks to that same point, which is that we're not just creating something out of nothing where we are using using this the tools of fiction or the the delivery of storytelling or the the you know creating a story arc where there's a plot and there's a development to the plot and all the different points of a story that you learn about in you know grade school um Uh to to make better sense of what is already there so yeah i agree with you i i feel a little uncomfortable when we if we are talking about just creating meaning out of nothing Right. And that's kind of depressing, too. Like, I don't want to create a story that just makes my life fit together when it doesn't really. You know, it's only the right. story that's holding it together. I want the story right. to to reveal what is actually there, what's actually true. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, good point. Okay, but then chapter five, Transcendence. This was the most disappointing chapter to me. Talk to me more about that. So she talks a lot about people who have experiences with the transcendent and there are studies and anecdotes that talk about that. And that's great. But it seems like their experiences of the transcendent were there was one kind of experience with the transcendent. And it was this feeling of being in touch with something that's just completely other than yourself and completely greater than yourself. Like when you walk Uh into, you know, a starry night sky or um, you realize how big the universe is or something like that. And she didn't talk about people who experience the transcendent in kind of small daily ways, like through a a spiritual or a religious or devotional practice. Um, You know, whether it's just like going to church and, you know, talking about your relationship with God and reading your religious books or something like that. Um, And not in this kind of mind blowing way sense uh Uh so so that was a little disappointing because it just seemed like she left out a big part of people who experience the transcendent yeah i think there's probably i mean part of it's probably because those stories are just more dramatic you know the story of traipsing into the texas wilderness to go stargazing or stories of people going to india to pursue uh, mystical experiences or people doing LSD. But yeah, I totally agree. I didn't come away from this chapter thinking, oh, this stuff is accessible to me because I'm not right. going to, I'm not going to take a hit of LSD. I'm not going to travel to India and 
uh, study with Buddhist, um, or I mean, so not Buddhist, Hindu monks. Um, I'm not going to, you know, go to Tibet and study with Buddhist monks. I'm not going to do any of those things. So how can I have this experience as well? And you're right. I think she, um, she could have explored more of seeking the transcendent in the, in ordinary life. Yeah. Just at least including a few anecdotes of that, of people who their pillar of meaning is transcendence, but they live it out in a very small kind of personal, quiet faith practice. Mm hmm. Yeah. Um, Which is probably so actually on, what her experience with her family's um, Sufism is. Yes. Yeah, I think you're right. On page 133, she, she um, has a quote from, or not a quote, but she references ideas from a psychologist at the University of Pennsylvania. But she says that during transcendence, states, two remarkable things happen, which makes me think that she's really mostly talking about transcendent states of the mind rather than, for example, a commitment to go to church weekly, because that, I think she would say, doesn't replicate the transcendent state of mind that uh, the, that these other things do. Um, or even someone's commitment to pray the rosary daily, that wouldn't necessarily generate the, or replicate the experience, the cognitive experience that she's talking about here, where the self washes away um, and anxieties about existence and death evaporate. But I think in a small way, um, and I have not seen research to back this up, but I just have a hunch that in a small way, those commitments to to dedicate yourself to the to ideas of the transcendent do uh, do uh, uh, help you ascribe meaning to life. Yeah, that makes sense. I yeah, I agree. Um, so I think I mean, do you think do you also agree that this was probably her weakest chapter for those reasons? Um. I mean, I thought it was an important chapter, but I, I think it, I think you have identified a crucial weakness in it. Yeah, I think it could have been longer. I think she could have added another fifteen or twenty pages to exploring those ideas that we just talked about. Because the, as it as it reads now, the transcendence one doesn't really relate to me all that much. Right. And as as you know, I'm a practicing Christian, so it should. But I'm not. I don't go into deep state meditation at all you know yeah yeah that's, that's not in my uh, in my toolkit and i think the other problem with all of the examples of transcendent experiences is that all of those experiences are supposed to be in contrast to any sort of focus on the self and right. and i don't think you have to totally spurn the self in order to have a connection with the transcendent nor should you. I think that's, I mean, we kind of talked about that already at the beginning with the Sikhism um, and your right. point about how they said that the self is a barrier to love. And mm-hmm. I just think that's an extreme view, not extreme in in a bad way necessarily, but it's on one end of the spectrum and right. and one that is not necessary in order to have an experience of the transcendent. Right. So I think an alternative to this framework would be to view the self not only as infinitely small in a vast universe, but as infinitely small in a vast universe, but also infinitely valuable because because it's because the self's creator has imbued it with meaning and purpose and given it a calling to do what it was meant to do. And I don't get that. I don't get the impression that she's talking about that in the transcendence chapter. I get the impression that she is really talking about complete self-denial 
and um, sort of, I guess, evaporating into the ether of the universe. So it's not it's not really as concrete. It's not as accessible, um, and I really don't think it's really as um, as consonant with most people's experience. Yeah, either. yeah, yeah. That's why I don't think it would have been hard to add like some more anecdotes from other people and just to flesh out this chapter a little bit more. Right, right. So those are the Should four wrap, pillars. Yeah. Wrap up the with the growth and cultures and meaning stuff. Yeah. So she's got three chapters after that, including the conclusion growth, which is about how we become more resilient through these pillars of meaning through meaning and then cultures of meaning people who have kind of curated people's experiences of meaning and then the conclusion. So yeah, just real quick, I don't have a ton of comments on the closing chapters here, but um, I do like the growth chapter and I thought it was important because it showed she had a crisis of meaning chapter in the beginning, but I actually think the growth chapter was potentially more helpful in illustrating why we need meaning in our lives. On page 185, she says that none of us will be able to go through life without some kind of suffering. And that's why it's crucial for us to learn to suffer well. And so I think here is kind of the, the apex of it all. So finding meaning is not necessarily just about living well, but it's also about suffering well. And um, she talks specifically about traumatic growth, which she also talked to us about on our podcast, which is the, um, the opposite of post-traumatic stress disorder, if you can think of it that way. And she, she talked about this on the podcast, but basically people know about PTSD because soldiers come back from war and they have trouble adjusting and they have cognitive uh, and emotional problems because of that. But post-traumatic growth is when the opposite happens, that when you're exposed to trauma, you actually are able to turn it into a, a, a motivator of personal growth instead. And I thought that was important because if you can properly contextualize the trauma that you've experienced, then you can potentially turn it into growth. It doesn't mean it'll yeah. be easy. It doesn't mean that you can make tragedy fun right. or, or anything like that, but it does mean that from these terrible circumstances, we can emerge stronger. Right. Yeah, I thought that was a great chapter. I also liked the next chapter, Cultures of Meaning. Um, I thought that the stories that she told about people who value meaning in their lives and value meaning of their coworkers um, and friends and family, the cultures of um, different cultures that have popped up around the country, around the world, I thought they were really inspiring. Um, I really liked her mention of StoryCorps, which I think I had heard about them before, but I'm not really sure, but how they go around basically putting a microphone in front of people's faces and saying, tell your story. Um, yeah. And, and so you, and they, then they record it. So you have all of these, these records of people's stories and just kind of, I mean, not, not famous people, but just everyday people telling their stories about, you know, everything from living in the great depression to, to now, um, you know, living on the streets of New York City or something. So I thought that mm -hmm. was great and made me want to look into their their work more. So, um, yeah, I thought that was a, a good chapter, too, kind of just seeing meaning in action and how it's actually affecting people's lives to, to emphasize meaning as opposed to happiness. Yeah, I totally agree. And then one more note on that chapter, not substantive like your note, but uh, S. Fannie Smith references a study in which two researchers um, basically put plants in a nursing home and assigned the 
residents to look after the plants. And then they had a control group where the residents did not look after the plants, but the nursing staff just did. And actually, the, the wellness outcomes were better for the people who were looking after their plants because looking after their plants gave them a sense of a sense of meaning, a sense of responsibility, a sense of duty in, in a Kantian sense, perhaps. Um, and those who took care of their plants actually lived longer. But this study caught my eye reading it again because I realized that um, Atul Gawande in Being Mortal references the same study. And so that's just a plug into our next podcast where we will discuss Being Mortal, which is an awesome book. I've really enjoyed it. Yeah, and it completely overlaps with Power of Meaning because because of it does. those kinds of examples that the best care for the aging is is care that actually is concerned with meaningful lives. <laughs> so, right. yeah. Um, yeah, so that that is a really cool thing about these two books. Um, but yeah, I guess in conclusion, she brings up, was it Victor Frankel? Is that right? Yep. Is that how you pronounce his name? Um, his book, which is, what is it called again? It's no Man's Search for Meaning. She brings him up in the end, yes. in the last chapter, in the conclusion. And she also talks about um, another guy who studied um, assisted suicide. And I thought that both of those stories were really interesting um, and a good way to wrap it all up. Um, and it seemed like, in conclusion, she was saying that that love is really what it's all about. That love kind of all you need is love. Yeah, in the words of the Beatles. <laughs> um, exactly. So that seemed to be what Victor Frankl's point was at the end, and that's where she lands at the on the last page that um, that we can find meaning in our lives through love. So. So yeah, so that is Power of Meaning, and I guess we we didn't give it a grade yet, so um, I'll go first. My grade, I think, would be a B. I think I really liked, um, I thought, I mean, she's a fantastic writer, and I found the writing very engaging and um, very interesting. Her stories were all very interesting, the studies. But I didn't um, resonate with all of the the stories, and and I think that there could possibly be a better way to organize the different pillars, or at least to understand why the pillars help us understand why the pillars are important um, for understanding meaning. And you know, one way could just be the idea that the pillars aren't necessarily distinct ideas of meaning, but they are different lenses through which we view meaning, almost like the idea right. of the blind men who are touching the elephant. I think that's a story, right? <laughs> a metaphor that we're all, the pillars help us all kind of re- find meaning, but in the end, we're really looking at the same thing, which is what she kind of says right. in the conclusion that it's all about love. So, mm-hmm. so I don't know. I think that might be helpful going into it if you aren't trying to keep all of the pillars distinct because I just got a little frustrated sometimes because it was like, wait, that relates to this. And obviously I even confused some of the anecdotes. So they are so related. And I think maybe it would be helpful to, to explain that a little bit more, but that's my, that's, was, that's my conclusion. What about you? Yeah. Um, I would also give it B. I think most of my quibbles line up with your quibbles. Some of them maybe a little more than quibbles because they are pretty substantive. But I do I appreciate her her effort doing this because meaning is a really important thing to talk about for all the reasons that she cites. I think we do have a crisis of meaning. I think that people don't understand what their purpose in life is, and I think when people are confronted with tragedy now, they are often not able to turn into post traumatic growth. Um, and I think it's because 
basically modernity makes it difficult to do so because digital connectedness makes it harder for us to find meaning. It's no longer fashionable to believe in God. It's fashionable to be sort of um, a determined agnostic, I guess. Um, and so that, of course, makes it harder to locate transcendence and uh, find meaning from it. So I, I really appreciate her efforts in writing this book, and I think she's on to a lot of good ideas. I, like you, have some issues with the pillar concept. Um, I think maybe, I think, I'm trying to remember, we, I, I might have even suggested this to her on our podcast, I don't remember, but I think instead of having a visual of these four pillars holding up, you know, a roof, almost like a pillar holding up the Parthenon or the Acropolis, I think it might be better to think of them as layers of a pyramid where the, the transcendence is the bottom layer of the pyramid because the transcendence is what gives you a foundation for starting and you know understand who you are in relation to the universe and others and god um and then the next layer of the period i think would be a storytelling in other words like understanding the meta narrative in which you as a self find yourself and then belonging like the context that you have would be the third layer of the pyramid so um, what, who are you in relation to the rest of humanity? Um, and then I think the apex of that pyramid would be purpose and what you're called to be and to do. Do you kind of go from the, the biggest perspective to the smallest perspective? Yes. From God all the way through to man or to yeah, your own so person? From, right. So from God to self, essentially. Yeah, I like so that. So that's how that's how I would refine the model, I think. Um, but these are, I think, four useful concepts for understanding how we pursue meaning to various degrees. Yeah. So All B right. overall. Great. It's my grade. So if you haven't read Power of Meaning, we recommend it. Um, definitely pick up a copy. And we'll be referencing it again when we talk about Being Mortal, which will be the final installment of Season five's book club. That's right. Um, in the meantime, you can join the conversation at facebook.com slash vernacular podcast or on Twitter or Instagram at vernacular pod. You can also email us Zach and Sally at vernacularpodcast.com. And you can always check out our website and hear older episodes there or on iTunes or Google play or Stitcher. Uh, and you can go to our blog at blog.vernacularpodcast.com. I think that covers. Thank you so much again for listening for vernacular podcast. I'm Zach and I'm Sally. Have a great week. All you need is love. All you need is love. All you need is love. Love. Love is all you need.